2 Samuel 11, 14 through 26. I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version that I have here. The Pew Bibles are a different version, but you can go ahead and follow along. Verses 14 through 26. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the servant, king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Good morning. If you haven't yet turned to 2 Samuel 11, do so and uh, just keep your thumb there. We'll come back to it in uh, just a minute, 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. We're in week three of the series called Don't Go Solo. It's a series all about fighting the temptation to isolate ourselves from one another, from the body of Christ, and even from God. The purpose of this series is to convince you from Scripture that God intends us to do life together. Throughout this series, we're highlighting different aspects of this idea of fellowship. The concept that I mentioned to you last week of koinonia. Koinonia is K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. It's the, that New Testament word for fellowship. That fellowship that calls us to be together and not separate. Community and not solo. We're learning together in this series that, that God calls us to be a community that is a living, earthly model of God's nature and His character. You see, God Himself is a perfect community. And the people of God are called to live out that perfect community, that, that Trinitarian, that three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship. We're called to, to live out that perfect community with the kind of unity that makes us identifiable as a single body. 
Listen to that again, because it's a rich truth that stands behind this whole series here. You and I, as a part of the body of Christ, we have the ridiculous privilege of being called to model love and grace together in community so that the world can see in us, in us, the body of Christ, God's nature and his character. That kind of unity is what makes us identifiable as the body of Christ. That's why our verse that, that we're memorizing throughout this, this series here in the back of the connection card is 1 John 1, 3. It's in the back of the connection card there, and, and we'd encourage you to, to memorize that verse as, as a theme verse for this whole series. That, that verse says, that which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 3. <clears throat> well, in week one, we talked about how God planted Adam in the garden. And everything seemed hunky-dory until he said, well, it's not really good for you to be alone. And Adam said, yes, I agree. Um, please, please bring somebody else. And so woman was made. And, and, and in, that, in that passage there, we learned in Genesis 2 that, that fundamentally, in the very structure, in, in the basic stuff and the, the fabric of creation, even down to our bones, we feel the truth that God wants us not to be alone. Last week, in week two, we talked about fighting what we called the, the omnicompetent holy man syndrome. The omnicompetent holy man syndrome is where we looked at that Moses and his impossible task of meeting the needs of the people of Israel. We learned last week that because the job is too big, it is too hard and too important, responsibility among us needs to be shared. Well, today in week three, we want to look at the isolating effects of sin in the life of King David in 2 Samuel. We want today, uh, in, in effect, we want to own up to our sin as the source of our isolation. Sounds like fun, right? <laughs> You may not have, have expected to be coming to worship today thinking, I really want to own up to my sin as that isolating factor in my relationships with one another and with God. But you see what happens in a relationship when sin enters the picture. With God or with one another, what happens is, boom, instantly there's a distance when sin enters the relationship. There are new terms to a relationship when that conflict and frustration sometimes happens. Almost instantly, there's that distance. Some of us have given or received the let's just be friends speech. That changes the terms pretty quickly. And so I'm told. Maybe some of you have spoken or heard or know friends who have had a marriage relationship where the I want a divorce bomb is placed in the conversation. Suddenly, the terms of that relationship feel different. There's isolation and there's distance. That's what we're trying to fight against in this Don't Go Solo series. Before we dive into the scriptures here, let's pray uh, before we look at 2 Samuel. Father in heaven, it is our desire to be the people you've called us to be. We know full well that 
that our sin hinders that and gets in the way of relationship, not just with you, but also with one another. And so we ask today that we would see in the life of David the kinds of consequences that we want to avoid in our lives. And yet at the same time, we've all experienced those consequences, that, that shame and that guilt that comes from sin. And so we ask that you would enter our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, and that your scriptures would be alive to us today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I want to paint two pictures. I want to paint two pictures of sin that illustrate how we respond to the isolating effects of sin. You see, when we try to hide our sins, we learn to operate in the Christian community with certain rules and regulations about how we're supposed to deal with sin. These rules, these rules that we come up with, they serve to keep us isolated because we keep on a good face instead of squarely facing sin. These rules are, are, are sort of the, that social posturing that makes things look good on the outside when they are rough on the inside. Those kinds of rules and regulations and, and social posturing among us don't help any of us get out of isolation. It's the difference between these two pictures of sin. The first picture is the now infamous story of the Wakefield Plastic Missile Heist. The Wakefield Plastic Missile Heist. When I was about four or five, maybe, we lived in Johnson City. And I remember quite vividly the Saturday morning where my mom took me to Sears in the Johnson City Mall. About that time in the late 70s, um, there were these about foot-high plastic Japanese robots that were coming on to the toy scene. And I saw this at Sears. And I instantly fell in love with this little plastic Japanese robot. He was, he was dark red, and he had a shiny chrome piece. Of, well, they, they were plastic. But it looked like chrome, and it was really fancy. And he shot things and made noises and, and, and moved around. And, and I was just enamored with this uh, little robot here that I saw at Sears. I knew, I knew. That when I fell in love with this little robot, the answer from mom was instantly going to be, <laughs> no way. I knew that mom would say no. By that age, I'd already figured that out. And by the time my brother came along, I just remember time and again having to say to him, um, forget it, Dave. It ain't happening. The answer is going to be no. You can, just, you can just take that to the bank. So maybe, because, because I knew somehow that I'd never see Plastic Robot Man again, I decided at that point at four or five to do what sometimes we decide to do, which is borrow that plastic missile. <laughs> I decided to borrow that plastic missile, and I tell you what, it only took about five minutes of borrowing before either mom saw it and I, and I confessed or, or I just broke out because the guilt was too much. I, I can't remember, but we didn't get very far out of the parking lot before I found myself back in Sears in the middle of that store Five minutes later, facing that what seemed like a huge man and, and telling the store manager of how horribly guilty I felt and, and that I was sorry. And, and, and here's the plastic missile. I mean, it had to be an inch long, just this little plastic thing that shot out of its shoulders. And That's picture of sin number one. I'm, I'm fully willing to tell you about Wakefield plastic missile heist. 
But here's a picture of sin number two. A friend told me this week about something that he saw at a pizza buffet once. He was there with his family, and he noticed over in the corner of this restaurant, there was a young lady. This young lady was extremely obese, as wide as she, she was tall. And she was all alone at this, this big, long table. She was sort of hunched over, kind of leaning over the table as if to hide something. And of course, that was an intriguing sight, so my, my friend kind of peeked further and, and tried to figure out what was going on. When he got close enough, he could hardly believe what he saw. This poor woman was, was hunched over a pile of pizza that he said had to be about a foot and a half high. It's the kind of thing you see in movies or in documentaries, but, but not in real life. This, this poor woman hunched over this, this foot-high pile of pizza. Her, her body language seemed to say, please, don't look at me. Just, just leave me alone with my pizza. Just leave me alone. What a, what a tragic picture. And, and think of this contrast. The issue here today is this. Sin isolates us so much. It distances us from God and from one another in such profound ways that we create among us a world where we are only willing to share our plastic missile sins. But at every cost, we will hide our foot-high piles of pizza. We don't often get the inside story on somebody's sin. When it comes to a person's worst sin, we don't, we don't always get the inside track. But because God wants us to deal openly and honestly with the sin that isolates us, God's word is very clear, very clear on sin and its effects. Today we're going to see the nitty-gritty details, the, the piles of pizza in King David's life and their tragic consequences. Turn to Second Samuel, the 11th chapter, if you haven't yet. Here we see in chapter 11 that David had become comfortable. He had become comfortable, and things were going well. But as we'll see in, in the earliest part of chapter 11, his drift towards sinful compromise began way before the passage we read today. Look at the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Uh, wow, where are we? Chapter 11, verse 1. Look at that first chapter there, uh, that first verse. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Check this out. Something is already wrong. In those days, kings didn't just send their troops. They went along. Now, of course, kings weren't sent to the, the front of the battle lines. They were kept safely in the back to give the orders. But David... Instead of being on the battlefield, it says the time when kings go out to battle. He's back at the palace. Instead of being with his soldiers, he is alone by himself in the palace. While the king sits around in leisure and comfort, his faithful soldiers are on the field. So in verse 2, 
while David is here on vacation, enjoying some leisure time, he saw something he liked, and he took it. Verse 2 says this, It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now I wonder, is this the first time he'd seen Bathsheba? Had he seen her before? Was his staying behind more intentional than were shown? Maybe his, his downward slope of sin had started before this. We're not told this in Scripture, of course, but, but long story short, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant with David's son. So like, so like what we do when we're caught in sin, David starts to come up with a plan to cover his own tracks. He first tries to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, come home to sleep with her so that it will seem that this baby is, is his. But as we'll see in verse 11 and following, Uriah's character and his integrity are head and shoulders above King David's. Just listen to Uriah in verse 11 here of this chapter. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, the ark of the covenant. And Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths, in temporary houses, in temporary dwelling places. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Uriah says, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What a contrast between David and Uriah. While his soldiers are off at war, David is comfortably hanging around the palace committing adultery. Yet Uriah, who is already abstaining from sexual relations because he's off to war, he comes back, and in effect what he says is, respectfully, King David, how can I enjoy relations with my wife while the people of God are off at war? I will not leave my post. I am on duty. Yikes. David's sitting here going, great. Dagon Uriah has to be all chivalrous. And now I'm really in trouble. And to make the contrast even more pronounced, the author of 2 Samuel makes a point of calling him Uriah the, the Hittite five times in this chapter. As if to say, see, even a Gentile, a non-Jew, is more honorable than King David. So today we pick up the story in verse 14, where David plans his covering of his tracks. Verse 14 is where plan B, plan B kicks in. It says this, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David's plan B is, is to have Uriah murdered. Notice the irony here. David writes a letter to his military commander, Joab, and Uriah is his messenger. David apparently is, is so hopelessly overwhelmed by his need to cover up his wrongdoings, that he plots, of all things, to take another person's life. And not just anyone, but the life of a faithful soldier 
You see, Uriah is what they called one of David's mighty men, one of, one of the 30 described in 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. He was a man of valor and of honor, who was listed as, as one of David's elite, one of his special forces. It would, be, it would be like being a part of the Navy SEALs today. And so we see here in verses 16 and following, we see what becomes of David's scheme. We pick it up in verse 16 where it says this, As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Why, did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to the king, Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Before... <laughs> Before this message arrives, David expected to hear the good news of, of the offing, of, of the killing of just Uriah. But instead, he receives news that not only is Uriah dead, but also some of his most faithful warriors. Think of that moment for David when he learns that, that other faithful warriors of his also died. There he is trying to cover up his own infidelity with Bathsheba. And what was just supposed to be an easy fix, at least relatively so, has now become mass murder. So David hears this news. And if he has any goodness or conscience left in him, he must be thinking, what, what has happened here? It, it wasn't supposed to be this way. You see, in every, in every point in this tragedy of bad moves, David becomes more isolated. His sin has now separated him from everything. At this point, David is so deeply buried in sin that he feels like his only options are lies and deceit. This is where sin leads. Instead of confessing our sins, we cover them up. We hunch over our, our piles of, of pizza and, and a complex web of, of lies and deceit leave in its wake nothing but hurt and pain, and in this case, even murder. We build for ourselves an alternate reality that disconnects us from others and even disconnects us from ourselves. A French writer said, we are so accustomed to disguising ourselves that in the end, we become disguised to ourselves. David was so disguised to himself in his sin that it took God sending a prophet. It took God sending the prophet Nathan in the next chapter. Listen to these first five verses in 2 Samuel Chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. He came to him and said to him, there was, 
this story, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from the cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity on the poor man. And Nathan said to David, You are that man. You are that man. Friends, all of us at some point in our lives have experienced that feeling of being that man. All of us have experienced that isolation and that shame and that guilt that that, that makes us hunch over those things that we want to cling so tightly to. But friends, immerse yourself into this truth. The good news of the gospel is is the amazing truth that in Christ there is no foot-high pile of pizza that can keep him away from us. Listen to 1 Peter, the first chapter. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Even with bodies left in the wake of deceit and isolating sin, because of God's grace, David could write these words in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Friends, Psalm 51 was written after Nathan the prophet came to David and said, you are the man. And so he can write words like this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, you don't need me to tell you that, that, that life is hard. In our moments of quiet and of clarity, we, we all must admit struggles with sin. Strife in our relationships 
difficulties in our marriages, our finances, depression, alcoholism, addictions, greed, pride, vanity, gluttony, the list goes on. These are sins about which we are understandably, rightly ashamed. But instead of of giving into that isolation, instead of going it alone, instead of going solo like our pride wants us to, instead of listening to the lies of the evil one and the deceiver who wants to keep you and me isolated from one another, we, we, we must fight against those, those things in our hearts and our minds that come from the deceiver that, that say, they don't know, he doesn't know, she doesn't care, they don't have time. Fight against that part of us that isolates us, that says, I give in to those lies. Instead of giving in to that kind of solo life, we want to commit to being part of a loving gracious community that God is making of us here. We need rather to give into the process of becoming a fellowship of people whose relationships with one another are meaningful enough that these sins, these, these weights, these, these loads on our lives are born together in the context of a community Friends, don't let a handshake and a smile on Sunday be the full extent of your relationships in Christian community. Get involved in fellowship, togetherness. Get into a Sunday school class. We have men's ministries and women's ministries and seniors' ministries and youth ministries. We have ladies' circles. We have classes on Wednesday nights. There are tons of opportunities for you and I to build relationships that are meaningful enough to handle the kinds of things that we need to have handled in our lives. What if if David had Christian community? What if if someone had said to him, "I, I I see that you're isolating yourself. You, You need to go off to war. You need to be with your soldiers. What if David had had that Christian community? Friends, that's the kind of bond we need in order for those isolating effects of sin, those those things that, that shame us from one another. That's the kind of relationship we need in order for us to go beyond just just the smile and the pat on the back on Sunday morning that helps us the kind of meaningful relationship that helps us become who God wants us to be and allows us to do life together. Let's pray. Lord, it's our hope, our desire to be the kind of people who have relationships with one another where those hard things that don't make it to prayer lists can be born with one another. Father, create among us the kind of community that, that can aptly be described as fellowship so that those foot-high piles of pizza in our lives can be dealt with honestly and openly. Create those safe places among us, Lord. 
In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.